Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Aspies Huang and Jake discuss the results of the 2020 Taiwanese election. And I talk to Madeleine Gordon from Young Australians in International Affairs about the hidden costs of climate change. But first, the next in our Grumpy Strategist series, we hear from Aspies Michael Shoebridge and Marcus Hellier as they discuss the impact of pausing the Triton program and the implications for Australia's force structure. So, Marcus, um, I know you're grumpy. I'm grumpy too, but it's good to talk to you. I I thought today we might have a bit of a talk about the US uh, defence budget and a bit about some of the decisions and shifts in there and what it might mean for Australia. So $704.5 billion US dollars uh, in the Pentagon's budget bid to Congress. Um, some of the most interesting things for me in there are some of the programs and weapon systems they're getting out of. So they're talking about retiring Global Hawk, the first long-range unmanned aerial vehicle, for uh, uh, the, one of the ones that was shot down by the Iranians recently. Um, they're talking about ending uh, production of Reaper, their armed uh, development of Predator, and we are buying a version of that, the MQ-9B Sky Guardian. Uh, But more significantly, Triton, that long-range maritime surveillance unmanned aerial vehicle that hasn't really entered service in the maritime version Australia's getting yet, and already the Americans are pausing the program. What do you think is the future of Triton in the US? That's a really good question. And that uh, announcement, I think, came uh, as a surprise to pretty much everybody, uh, including our Defence Department. Uh, As you know, the government has a kind of incremental approval strategy for that. So it's approved $1.4 billion for the first aircraft and all the supporting infrastructure. And then last year, about another $350 million for a second aircraft. And the longer term plan seems to be a total of six or seven aircraft. So that's all been thrown into doubt now because the US uh, Defence budget puts production on hold for a couple of years. And I mean, one thing we know is that the US is always much more willing to walk away from programs than we are. It's got a bigger portfolio and it's happy to cut them and and adjust. So that's always a vulnerability for us if we are doing cooperative programs for the US. I guess the key is understanding why they're doing it. And uh, I think there is a bigger move going on in the in the US uh, Defense Department away from what we can call UAV 1.0 to maybe UAV 2.0. So that first, it's not strictly speaking first generation, but the kinds of UAVs that they've been operating for the last couple of decades. So big, expensive, but ultimately not survivable. Mm. You you can't really operate in contested environments. And so you think, uh, particularly the US Navy, where it's trying to free up money to reinvest in um, other platforms, the idea of spending, you know, the equivalent of $250 million a piece on Mm. a large, not survivable UAV, they may be questioning the long-term viability of that. So really what what you're talking about is uh, there's that interesting idea of, so that was drone generation 1.0 and they might be moving to drone drone 
uh, Generation 2.0, which is a, a whole different kind. But the back to that to me is the biggest strategic shift. This is uh, the ending of the era, the counterterrorism era of American military capability and the, the restart of the era of strategic peer competitor driven by China's military I, power. I ag agree 100% with that observation. Now, obviously, trying to change direction in the US DO, DOD is like changing the direction of the QE2 and it's taken a while to, to come through and it, that process is still happening. But I think this is clear acknowledgement that, you know, competition with China is now clearly the number one priority. That said, however, there is still extensive debate, discussion inside the DOD about what's the best way to do that. You know, so you see that in the US Navy force structure and the debates around the US Navy force structure. And, you know, do you keep aiming for a uh, a fleet of 355 manned ships, which mm. you know, I think is unaffordable and I think most objective observers would say is unaffordable, or do you move to some other kinds of mix? So these debates are still happening, but um, I think the overall goal is there and I think potentially Triton and uh, Reaper are casualties of mm. that. I would not be betting on uh, Triton production starting up again. Yeah, to me with Triton, it's not so much a matter of, well, you know, we're in this cooperative development program because I think we put $200 million in to be a, a cooperative development partner with the US. How could they let us down given we're a cooperative development partner? It's more a case of don't we understand the strategic shift in the US military's force design? Uh, and that is that is the bigger thing. So you're right, there's a lot of sub-debates sub happening about how many ships should the US Navy have and should they be counting manned and unmanned in that. But the bigger shift is in force design. You see that in their budget where they're making new investments in things like hypersonic weapons, unmanned surface vehicles, long-range and smart munitions, particularly things like the long-range surface-to-air missile, uh, artificial intelligence, autonomy. These are all multiple billion-dollar invest, billion investments. Microelectronics, 5G, satellites, cyber and cloud computing. Now, that all says to me that's driven by the shift to strategic competition with China. Yeah, I would agree entirely. And, you know, one thing about the US Department of Defence is it invests massively in research, development, test, and evaluation, you know, and their whole mindset is completely different to ours, where we prefer to, you know, buy off the shelf. We're very unwilling to take risk. Our R and D programs are a tiny fraction of a percent of uh, the total department budget. Whereas in the US, they do it on a grand scale. If we look at the US uh, Air Force, they're spending, uh, I think, about thirty-seven billion on research, development, test and evaluation in financial year 21. In fact, more on that than procurement itself. So that's clearly where its uh, priorities are at the moment. So I agree it makes sense to leverage off that when we can, but it's important to understand where are they going and what are the risks for us. Mm. So, you know, there are benefits for us. So like the long-range anti-ship missile that we uh, – the US uh, Department of Defence put out a media release about a month ago saying Australia had been approved to acquire it. A great acquisition in from, in my view, but that was the result of the US realising it had a weakness in the anti-ship space. It was, uh, you know, yeah. Chinese missiles were, were more capable, put a lot of effort into quickly developing that missile. So the US can do these things very quickly and there is opportunity for us to leverage off that.
I think that's the other thing, that there's a real shift to uh, improving the offensive firepower of the US military to have uh, longer range reach from their platforms, whether that's ships, aircraft, submarines or land-based systems, and to really retain and regain a, a warfighting capability advantage that is as much about deterring Chinese military power as it is about fighting any potential future war. Yeah, I agree. So the US is spending just just on hypersonics this coming year over $3 billion in, in R&D. So they've signaled very clearly they're going to make this happen. It may not happen as quickly as they might like. There's always you know problems in implementation and putting things into production. But uh, US hypersonics are going to happen and they will happen in the next few years. Mm. Well, one big example, I think, is the hypersonic weapon uh, well, hypersonic missile uh, that they are now planning to have able to be in service on their Virginia-class submarines by 2028, which tells me if they're having a weapon like that in service in 2028, we'll probably see smaller hypersonic weapons in service considerably earlier. Um, now, all this makes me think um, that there's also a shift from the slow food movement of slow capability development more to something great about America, McDonald's, you know, a fast food movement. Uh, so a much faster capability development and fielding. And I think that's going to be to Australia's great benefit if we don't take the wrong lesson out of Triton. Triton wasn't cancelled because they hate cooperative development. Triton was cancelled because it doesn't fit with strategic need anymore. Uh, and getting into co-development on rapid uh, development and production programs, I think, is something that's of strategic importance for our own defence capabilities. Uh, potentially, if you you know pick the right winners, that I'd agree. All right, so we can see from the US Department of Defence budget that there are some big kind of fundamental philosophical changes occurring around what the force is for. Our Defence Department and our Minister of Defence has, has flagged Similar changes in thought here, or at least the minister has flagged that uh, she's not happy with uh, the direction of the white paper 2016 and that uh, she's asked the department to do a strategic review and that will result in a new force structure plan. Some of the timelines she's indicated previously would indicate that that work was probably culminating around about now. So what do you think is going to be in that and how will it differ from the investment plan that was attached to the 2016 white paper? Well, I would hope that our Australian policy planners are making similar judgments about the need to shift from the counter-terrorism era, era, to an era where there's a much stronger military capability user and provider in the, in the case of China that doesn't share strategic interests with us. And, and just simply from a capability benchmarking point of view, the ADF needs a lift in offensive firepower. So that same shift to fast development of much more offensive weapons to come off all the platforms that the Defence Force has, ships, aircraft, submarines and land systems, that should be at the centre of this revised strategic plan that should be going to Minister Reynolds. Now, obviously, something that really needs to be thought through is how much of the planning is based on the legacy strategic imperative uh, and how much of the 2016 white paper still has that in it. And Triton, I suppose, is the, is the example that crystallises that because that 
was looked at as a central part of our intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities to enable the future force. Mm, but and the yeah, Americans are saying it's too vulnerable to survive. Yeah. So. so, but so if it's if it's wrong for that environment, that's got to cause this broader rethink that I'm talking about. But what about the rest of the force? So we know, as we've noted many times, shipbuilding consumes a huge part of defence's investment budget. Is that part of this old legacy concept? It should be chucked out or is there still a role for say frigates and submarines as the platforms to launch the new long-range strike weapons for example well they would be platforms to do that but you just look at the number of missile cells in uh, in the frigates and in the air warfare destroyers they're going to need more launchers than they have in those ships so there's some new thinking required there and this is some of the debate inside the u.s navy that you see about are they going to build a uh, cheap unmanned or or uh short crude uh, corvettes that have that are mainly launch platforms or are they going to use other ways of launching things so that's that's got to be put into our thinking too my thought is you know those long gestating big platforms like the frigates and the submarines are, are going to continue down their development path but the fast food movement i mentioned before about getting more offensive firepower more longer range uh, precision weapons into the infantry than are in the current plan. That's something that can start to fill the time gap between now when those big platforms uh, start to come in. Mm. And look at another thing the Americans are doing. Uh, they can't build enough submarines themselves either. So what are they doing? They're complementing their manned submarines with unmanned submarines. And Boeing's Orca, they're acquiring them very fast uh, and they're learning how to operate unmanned underwater systems along with their manned systems. That's something we could do too. We could yeah. do that before that first attack class. I think one of the things like. you see with the US is that they're much more willing to experiment. I mean, obviously, they've got more money, more capacity, more people, but they're much more willing to experiment with concepts. Uh, we tend to be a little more, we're not going to bring it into service until it's perfectly fully formed and we, we know, understand everything about it. So I think we need a little bit more of that US uh, attitude. The challenge for us is always going to be shipbuilding consumes so much of the budget. How do you free up the cash and the people and the headspace to do that kind of experimentation? It may be that um, things like Triton become the offsets to free up money to for that, your so-called fast food. Well, you're right. I mean, the, if, if the, you can't touch frigates and, and yep. submarines because South Australia will revolt, then you've got to find somewhere else to identify that money. Yep. So you could say uh, Triton is actually, it, it's lucky in a way because it's made investment room for some of these faster moving capabilities. And I'd give the other example, the armed reconnaissance helicopter. There's another thing where uh, you could save billions of dollars and put it into this faster moving capability. I so believe, I I believe I would welcome, somebody at ASPE's already proposed that one. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I would welcome more fast food uh, in, in Minister Reynolds' review. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Marcus. Madeleine Gordon is the Climate Change and Energy Security Fellow with Young Australians in International Affairs. We sat down to discuss the cost of inaction on climate change. Young Australians in International Affairs, what is it and how did you get involved? Yeah, so I'm actually quite new to Young Australians in International Affairs. I joined earlier this year 
as a Climate Change and Energy Security Fellow. Young Australians in International Affairs is a not-for-profit designed to promote uh, yeah, young Australians trying to enter this field, um, get a little more knowledge and experience in the area. And that was what I was looking for when I joined. Uh, in my role as a Climate Change and Energy Security Fellow, I publish a monthly analysis of developments in that field, uh, either domestically, but also very much looking at comparative approaches overseas. Um, and how Australia sort of stacks up. Wonderful. That sounds uh, very interesting and very relevant, noting that the summer that we've had has really brought the climate change debate to the forefront. Um, what are some of the ongoing impacts or changes that you think we will see coming out of this bushfire season? Yeah, so I'm actually in a really unique uh, position to speak to that because I grew up in the Bega Valley, um, which was obviously an area quite heavily impacted by the fires this summer. So I spent most of the summer down there with the community there. And I think obviously it was a really rough summer, but it's not over. Uh, the fires are out now, but we're still seeing local businesses who just aren't going to recover for a really long time. It's quite a diverse region. Uh, so you see in agriculture, we saw the Tilba milk industry get hurt, bigger cheese obviously draws on the agriculture. It's also a massive tourism hotspot. So um, Bermagui, Marimbula, uh, all of those spots. And similarly, the Eden Chip Mill, uh, they handed out their redundancy payments yesterday, I believe. So these impacts are going to keep going for some time and we're not really seeing uh, the financial assistance from the government come through and directly boost those communities yet. So I think from my perspective, that's really going to be the ongoing impact. In terms of a policy response from a more coordinated, long-term perspective, are we seeing the right things being done in Canberra or more locally, or are we not seeing that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, obviously this isn't something we can afford to have happen next summer or the summer after that, but that's what's going to happen if we don't change. In terms of what's needed, it really needs to be a multi-pronged approach. Sure, we need better land management practices, absolutely, and better incorporation of Indigenous practices as well. That's probably not going to cut it by itself. Uh, for example, Bamboka, a small town uh, down in the Bigger Valley burnt this summer. It also burnt last summer. So that in isolation isn't going to be a sufficient approach. Obviously, we need preventative action in terms of climate change measures. Uh, we saw Labor recommit to their 2050 carbon neutral policy this week. If the coalition's uh, party meeting at the earlier this month is any indication, they're still struggling to develop a cohesive approach, and that's a bit disappointing. And apart from like cohesive uh, climate change policy from the top, those land management practices, it's also about uh, boosting the ground level resources. Uh, so the RFS, your forestry, your wires, they're all really crucial services that were left quite short-staffed this summer. And that's something that we need to be really looking at boosting next summer. Um, you've written a lot on the cost of climate change in action. Can you step us through some of your findings? Yeah, absolutely. So we're having a really hard time pricing the cost of the bushfires this summer. It's just too many factors at play too early, but we're looking at several billions of dollars. Uh, there's precedence. This isn't new. Uh, you look at uh, the Black Saturday fires, that was um, about $4.4 billion. Uh, Cyclone Tracy, in equivalent terms, uh, was $6.6 .6 billion. So these national disasters are really expensive. This isn't something that we can afford in the future. All the scientists are telling us that this is going to be a reoccurring event. Uh, the Climate Council has come out and said by 2030 we need double the amount of firefighters. Um, and they're really scary statistics. Uh, so these costs add up over time. 
Um, I spoke briefly before about how on a micro level it's affecting local economies around Australia. And so that's gradually eating into the government's funds and ability to deal with this. Beyond the ongoing financial impact this is going to have, what are some other maybe not as obvious impacts health-wise? You've written about potentially malaria being linked to climate change. So it's actually a really interesting area to look into the spread of infectious diseases and the relationship between that and temperature changes. So the optimal transmission temperature for malaria is uh, 26 to 29 degrees and that's just because of uh, larvae survival, fertility rates and mosquito lifespan, they're all the optimal range. Um, And so what we're seeing is the temperature sort of changes in different regions around the world. We're seeing some areas become too hot for malaria, great. We're seeing some areas that were previously too cold slide up into that range. Now it's really hard to sort of estimate whether the areas that are now vulnerable to malaria are bigger than the areas that are now uh, not vulnerable. But what we do know is that the areas that are newly vulnerable are not prepared. So while there is no commercially available vaccine for malaria, it is possible to sort of develop and inherit a degree of immunity. So these areas that were previously exposed, they were better at dealing with it because they had that natural immunity. But these new guys don't. And that's really concerning um, because it means that even if the so square mileage, so to speak, of the newly exposed area is smaller, the mortality rates are likely to be much higher. We're seeing temperature affect malaria. Are we seeing this anywhere else? Yeah, so coronavirus is actually a very topical issue right now. And there's no firm scientific evidence at this point, but there's been some really interesting studies uh, come out even at this early stage, particularly out of Hong Kong, about the link between temperature and uh, the spread of respiratory uh, diseases such as coronavirus. It's not just temperature, it's also like humidity and sunlight. And what we're seeing is that uh, lower temperatures are much more conducive to spread. So we actually have an inverse impact, which is quite interesting. It's been attributed potentially as one of the reasons where we haven't seen as many coronavirus cases in the Southern Hemisphere. Indonesia has certainly cited it as their reason for the almost complete absence of cases. And when you look at the hotspots, um, so Italy, Wuhan, Japan, they're all about 10 to 15 degrees. Their maximum temperature is about 10 to 15 degrees lower than Australia's right now, which raises some serious concerns for what Australia's winter is going to look like. We can't know. This is early studies and there's no firm evidence, but people are certainly worried about what it'll mean. The security implications of coronavirus are being realised at the moment and it has the potential to turn into a pandemic. What climate change related security implications that we could see in the near to distant future? Yeah, so the spread of infectious diseases is really just one aspect of it. We hear a lot about other non-traditional security threats. So we're looking at uh, displacement of uh, populations. I mean, we hear a lot about the Pacific Islands. Uh, There's some really scary predictions about what's coming there and sort of the mass migration towards Australia. Even Jakarta, Shanghai, they're all in serious trouble. Jakarta's got this interesting dynamic going where the poor city is both uh, sinking and the sea levels around it are rising. Uh, so I believe they've officially launched plans now to relocate the, uh, the capital um, elsewhere. Apart from migration, you also have some more traditional security threats. There's the United <laughs> Nations Convention on the Law of the Seas. It's a, a 1982 publication. Uh, specifies that the 200 nautical miles around uh, a country's coastline uh, is essentially um, their waters that they can fish in and whatnot. But uh, as these countries submerge, 
UNCLOS doesn't specify what happens to these waters. So in the Pacific Islands, we have pre-existing uh, tensions, some overlapping territorial disputes. And uh, the question comes that as these islands sink, who owns those waters? And UNCLOS isn't up to date enough to answer those questions. The likes of China and Vietnam also have vested interests in the region because it's really a fertile fishing ground. So we're seeing all these powers, um, big and small, sort of clash in the region and that could potentially lead to escalating tensions. And that's an issue that's often really overlooked. What are we seeing in this area that we can look to to work on and contribute to to maybe address some of these things? We've seen sectors of society really mobilise on climate action, even though we've sort of got this federal inaction right at the top, which is, like you said, quite depressing. But if you take the financial sector, for example, uh, the Commonwealth Bank has committed to uh, withdrawing from investing in thermal coal by 2030. We've seen similar commitments from NAB and ANZ, which is really encouraging. International investors have also been uh, heading down that track. So the financial sector is making progress. I recently looked at uh, work from the military. They've also started making adjustments and they're starting to really recognise the serious implications that it's going to have for their resource allocation. Our youth is a really obvious one. I mean, everyone talks about Greta, but this is a worldwide movement now. Uh, people my age and younger, we're, we're all really worried. And we've seen mobilisation of youth on a scale that I don't think I remember in my lifetime. And that's really inspiring. And then on a smaller level, even local governments have been really getting their act together on this front. There's an initiative called the Cities Power Partnership. It's run by the Climate Council and it's this national program that sort of unites these individual councils and cities that are committed to climate action. And what it asks each member to do is identify five initiatives, whether it's like installing solar panels on all council roofs or examples like that. Um, they have to commit to five of these initiatives and we've seen Councils representing over 120 councils, representing over 10 million Australians commit to this initiative. So this really grassroots action that's quite inspiring. I think something that we can really aspire to moving forward. Thank you so much and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Earlier this year, Taiwan's president was re-elected with 8 million votes. Here, Dr Huang Li Thu and Jake talk about why this election was unusual and the impact the election result has had on democracy's role in the Asia-Pacific. At ASPI, I run the special series called the Indo-Pacific Election Polls, in which we look at the most consequential elections of the year in the Indo-Pacific region. This year, we started early on in January to talk about um, the elections in Taiwan. Quite unusual elections to some very unexpected results, but also bearing greater geopolitical significance, not only the significance for the um, President Tsai Ing-wen's victory, but also also uh, keenly observe uh, as far as from Washington, um, clear uh, closer by in Beijing, but also here in Canberra, we look at it very closely. So th this was uh, considered one of the most uh, observed uh, elections, uh, uh, received most of international attention because of its uh, unusualness. Jake, let's let's talk about what was so unusual this time. Was it the exceptional turnout? Or was it adjusted the sheer number of 
the po uh, popular votes that the pre President Tsai Ing-wen received, which was uh, over 8 million. And that was the largest by amount uh, to any presidential candidate since the direct presidential elections in 1996. But um, the mood in the ground was quite uh, nervous. I remember before the election, there was quite a lot of anxiety about the election integrity. And the role of uh, wild cards as well as online disruptions. You were there. Uh, can you tell us how it felt uh, back then? It was a really exciting place to be. I think that you're you're absolutely right. This was a an unusual election. In many ways, the result was seen as pivotal in terms of the U.S. and democracy's role in Asia Pacific region. Um, on the ground, I have to say it's a wonderful experience to um, see the passion that the Taiwanese population has for democracy um, and the extent to which they're willing to engage um, wholeheartedly in the process. It really means something to the Taiwanese people and that that is um, refreshing um, coming from a, a a slightly uh, cynical political culture at times here in Australia. But in many ways, this election was even more about the relationship with the mainland than than those previous. Um, the In part, that was driven by the nature of the um, candidate selection. So hands rise to um, successfully contend the uh, mayoral election for Kaohsiung was um, noted and in many ways uh, seen as concerning given that there are allegations that his campaign was supported by social media mani manipulation and there's a really extensive um, investigation of that activity in um, foreign policy, which is um, unusual in that we don't see such overt involvement uh, linked to the Chinese state in elections, although it's fair to say that um, Taiwan faces extensive, an extensive barrage of political warfare uh, as the norm. But this, this level of um, cyber-enabled uh, manipulation during the, the local elections was, was identified and um, was something that we were interested in exploring in the, um, the presidential election back in early January. Now, uh, there's, there's no evidence thus far that there was extensive manipulation online, although Facebook did take down a set of accounts that it had some concerns around and they were linked to support for the KMT and for Han. So we know that um, there are times, particularly times of political crisis, when uh, we will see cyber-enabled interference linked to the, the, the Chinese state. And we've seen that targeting Hong Kong protests That's as well. Right. And I think that link with Hong Kong is, is a valid one because uh, I think there were two particularly notable issues that the Taiwanese electorate paid attention to. And one of those was what was happening in Hong Kong. That's right. Yeah, and I think Hong Kong factor was a big factor um, in this election in particular because I think uh, people have seen that the model of one China, two system is not really viable. And as um, in the in the midterm elections that you mentioned in November 2018, the economic um, uh, concerns and domestic issues were the main concerns of the voters. And that's why we came, uh, we came out with such 
surprising results of having a candidate from KMT, the Blue Party, uh, really dominating the South, which is traditionally very DPP, very green. That was a huge surprise because he rose really from uh, very unexpectedly on the promises of economic uh, uh, de- uh, development and eco- economic pro- uh, promises. But this time around, I think the primary concern was the national future, the future of the nation, rather than immediate uh, economic concern. So we've also had um, a record uh, number of the voters. We also have a record number of young voters, which is very encouraging. We, we see quite a big change in demographics in, in uh, Taiwan. And we've seen that before, how young people, how civil society are really the bastion of um, the Taiwanese democracy because uh, they were the ones who really led the sunflower movement back in the, uh, in the president's uh, Ma Ying-jeou time and protesting uh, against his economic deals with mainland China. So really this time, I think um, the demographic issues, the Hong Kong external issues, and also, uh, you know, how much uh, the rhetoric from Beijing, from Xi Jinping himself, talking about the unavoidable future of unification or reunification had played a, a huge role um, in how the voters uh, vote this time. While it was surprising, I think the margin didn't really change that much. Of course, we expected a lot of uh, commentators and analysts expected uh, President Tsai Ing-wen to do a little bit worse before the election, uh, just because she uh, had struggled uh, in in um, domestic popularity and support uh, also from her party. But I think uh, she was very, very skillful in how she approached uh, the really big uh, existential almost challenges and how she approached both pressure from China, from uh, Xi Jinping, but also how she um, skillfully managed the relationship with Trump's U.S. So I always say that it is probably the most, uh, the hardest job uh, she's got as a female president, as a a professor um, of law uh, in um, in a country that is um, often not recognized, uh, but dealing with really two big um, personalities and almost a populist uh, way in how they they deal with uh, their international politics. So she's got really hard. A job, uh, but um, apart from uh, these results, looking forward, so she's got another four years uh, in the office. Um, we've we expect um, the geopolitics to be um, become a real challenge ahead, but also domestically. Before we go back to the geopolitics, I, I'd like to uh, hear more about the domestic uh, issues and um, also what are the thinking ahead. Um, what are the measures in place to prevent future concerns and worries and anxieties about potential online um, disruption or domestic interference? Because uh, Taiwan, uh, just as Australia, is very concerned about the issues of political interference. That's right. Uh, and President Tsai needs to carry the, the positive momentum of her campaign forward. They um the support of the youth vote was was palpable on the ground. Um, political rallies in Taiwan are like rock concerts. In terms of concerns around um, political interference, uh, 
the Taiwanese government introduced a piece of legislation in late December that that was um, passed just after the presidential election and the an anti-infiltration act that really brings together a number of strands of existing Taiwanese legislation and it's designed to prevent malign interference in Taiwanese politics by foreign hostile forces, whoever they may be. In some ways, I think the foreign influence transparency scheme that we introduced here in Australia uh, played a part in in uh, Taiwan's thinking around the kind of legislative structure they need to respond to this kind of political warfare. Uh, but the the legislation itself is modeled more on the kinds of anti anti mafia anti criminal organization um, legislation that we see in places like uh, Japan and 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 Italy. Um, it's really about uh, preventing uh, malign finance from flowing into Taiwanese politics. So I think it's it's early days. Let's see um, mm-hmm. how how that legislation stands up against the threat and whether we whether we see some um, convictions. There was a response, a number of uh, media, Chinese mainland-based media companies that have interests in Taiwan with, withdrew their business. Uh, but the, the connections to the mainland are, um, are strong and, and there, will be, there will be flows of people, of business relationships. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a difficult space identifying the malign from the benign. Let's see if the legislation stands up. Yes, uh, Taiwan is a very interesting place to to observe, both from what you've mentioned, Jake, about domestic uh, and developments, but also in terms of uh, the role it plays in the region. Um, we've uh, mentioned earlier that it's kind of re-emergence in the geopolitics um, since uh, the US uh, announced the Travel Act and uh, allowing its senior officials to visit Taiwan, but also increased diplomatic um, uh, activity as well as arms sale. Just recently, the U.S. House um, passed a, a so-called Taipei Act, which will give uh, the Secretary of State the power to either expand, reduce, or even terminate the U.S. aid to the country, depending uh, how they improve or worsen or is even severe ties with Taiwan. So this is to prevent many of, for example, Pacific countries, Pacific states, or even uh, states in Africa that used to have diplomatic uh, relations with Taiwan and abruptly ended um, and uh, switched to recognition uh, of the PRC instead. So this is one of the things that uh, to be watched uh, in in uh, in the space of Taiwan, really to empower this country, empower this democracy, um, uh, in in the stable uh, and um, balanced uh, Indo-Pacific region. So really, it is um, a space to watch. Thanks for the chat. Oh, well, my pleasure. Always good to talk. This has been Policy Guns and Money. Thank you for listening. And if you have any feedback or want to join in the conversation, you can tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll see you again in two weeks.